This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Isaac. I got some great questions coming in on the website, um, isaacmorehouse.com slash ask dash Isaac, or you can just go to isaacmorehouse.com and you'll see a tab that says ask Isaac with a very, very simple little forum to just put in questions. Something interesting I've noticed, I was doing this over Facebook before I started doing it on the website. And obviously on Facebook, everyone's name automatically appears and people did not seem at all reticent to ask questions with their name associated. Uh, since having the forum on the web, it's really interesting. Like given the option, almost everyone prefers to be anonymous. So almost all the questions that get submitted, people do not put their names on them. This, of course, might lead you to believe it's a giant conspiracy and I am submitting questions to myself to, you know, set myself up with softballs and stuff like that. Uh, I guess I, <laughs> I guess I have no, I have no proof that this is not happening. I'm sure there's some way I could prove to you with you know, the back end code of my WordPress site or something, but there's no proof. So now you can, it can be a mystery. You can hurl accusations at me of, you know, setting myself up with the easy questions and all that kind of stuff. Um, Hey, as long as you're talking about me, I don't care if it's good or bad. Okay. Let's jump right in. I've got a good number of questions here and I'm going to try to move through them relatively quickly. The first question, uh, no name associated. Lessons from running Praxis. That is a very, I mean, there's so much packed into there. I'm going to do a quick answer off the top of my head to two forms of the question. One is lessons from running Praxis as in just starting and running a business, um, getting something off the ground in general. And another could be Praxis specifically, given the nature of the program. Uh, if you don't know about it, go to discoverpraxis.com. That's my company. Um you know, what have I learned from running Praxis in particular, given that it's this, you know, sort of alternative model to uh, creating an education and career and and life that you want versus sitting on the school to college conveyor belt and hoping for the best. Um, So I'm going to answer both briefly. In terms of the business side, just getting a business off the ground and running it, biggest lessons, probably that taking a bunch of punches and not going down is more valuable than throwing a knockout punch. This is what made Rocky Balboa a great boxer, at least in the movies. I have no idea (laughs) about the real life Rocky Balboa. Um, He didn't throw the biggest punch. He wasn't a knockout puncher. He just stood in there round after round, taking body blows. Um, A different way to put this, uh, Mark, no, I think it's Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz Venture Capital Firm in his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things says, Look, if you find a silver bullet for your business, for your startup, great. Um, but don't spend all your time searching for a silver bullet. Just fire thousands of lead bullets. And I think that kind of general notion, you have a great idea, you have, and it's hinged upon certain things working out. And whatever those things are, like two out of three of them are not going to work out. You're not going to find that. Like if we only do this, the breakthrough will happen. You just have to keep standing and taking those punches and surviving. And the longer you can keep doing that, the more traction you'll start to get. Um, in terms of praxis specifically, the biggest lesson I think I've learned so far has been in terms of the young people we work with, brilliant, wonderful, uh, entrepreneurial, hardworking, out of the box, young people who really want to do something special with their lives. The biggest thing I've learned though, even the real mold breakers, the questioners, the ones who have always been willing to buck the status quo, they, they need a process of de-schooling. 
they need to be sort of cleansed of a mindset that's been beaten into them. That is a mindset that's concerned more with obedience than it is opportunity. That's, oh, I was told to, you know, get someone a resume. So I did it uh, by the deadline. Check that box off rather than, oh, somebody asked me to send them a resume. That's an opportunity. I have a chance to wow them. I have a chance to do something else. I have, this is a door that's open. I'm building social capital. Instead of seeing the world as opportunities, they see it as obligations. Okay, what are the things I absolutely have to do? How do I check those off? What are the hoops I need to jump through? Give me the game and I'll win at it. And we're always trying to tell them there is no game. We have no requirements of you. You have to do this. You have to, you're the customer here. What do you want? What opportunities do you want to seize? You know, do you, do you even want to be doing this aspect of the educational component? Because if you're just doing the minimum part, then it's obviously not valuable to you. We don't care. We're not going to be offended. We're not teachers you need to please. We're trying to help you create the life that you want. And we want to push and challenge you, but only if it's valuable to you. And only if you see that as an opportunity. And that switching that mindset is really hard really hard, even for people who are who are bold enough and, and brave enough to do something like Praxis, um, which it's not for everybody. It's not for the faint of heart. Uh, I think most young people probably can't handle it. Um, but even those who can, I've been, I've been really surprised uh, at how much work it is to sort of de-school oneself. All right, the next question from Chris Smith. Thank you, Chris, for putting your name so that we can verify your identity. Do you believe the craft beer industry is in a bubble at the moment that will soon pop? And what do you think will happen if it is? Um, oh, the question goes, hold on. Also, what is your favorite brewery? Perfect. Uh, okay. So I do not pretend to know anything about the craft brew industry. Um, besides that it's popular right now or anything about economic bubbles in general, but you asked the question and I'm going to answer. I'm going to give you my off the cuff. Um, do I think it's in a bubble at the moment that will soon pop? Uh, no, I don't think so. Based only on a few things. I mean, one, as long as general wealth and prosperity don't like crash tremendously. I think there's plenty of room for growth in craft beer industry. When you look at coffee, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was just like a commodity. You just had it at gas stations and Presbyterian church basements and it never really tasted like that. You know, coffee was just coffee. And it was a weird thing when sort of the gourmet market for coffee came out. And at the time, Starbucks was like gourmet, you know? Um, Today, that's like, oh, Starbucks. Oh, that's like the bottom of the heap, right? But every city, no matter how small, I mean, here in Charleston, it's not a very big city. There's at least half a dozen, probably more like a dozen specialty little coffee shops. So as a whole, I don't think the industry is in a bubble. I think there's plenty of room. It's something that people drink a ton of just like coffee. Um, and there's all kinds of different flavors. And the more time and, and discretionary income we have, um, Actually, I hate that word discretionary income. All income is discretionary. Um, the more time and income we have, I think the more we can, you know, be picky and, and have more variety in our uh, consumption of beer. So I think there's plenty of room as a whole. That doesn't mean it's an industry I would want to get into. I mean, take the coffee shop industry right now. Super easy to set one up and there's plenty of room for coffee shops everywhere, apparently. But individual, like in any given town of the size of, say, Charleston, will have five to ten little coffee shops at least. But at any given time, like there one or two is going out of business every year and another one's popping in because it's, it's just really hard. It's really competitive. Um, on the other hand, though, you also have a proliferation of people just for their own consumption, not to sell, doing more and more 
at home. You know, people never used to do their own French press or pour over drip coffee or like roasting their own beans in a popcorn maker or whatever else. People do that all the time now. And I think the same thing with beer more and more. I mean, I know so many people who brew beer at home or experiment with it. Most of them never plan to sell it and never will. Maybe they'll give it as gifts and things. I think that's going to continue to grow and proliferate as well because it's an enjoyable experience for many people. Um, so micro brewing, whether in the home or commercially, I think is going to continue to grow as a whole. Um, but I do think you'll have a lot of an increasing number as the competition ramps up of breweries that open and then close. You know, I think there, there is a little window when an industry is first taking off where it almost seems like it's, I don't want to say easy because no business I don't think is easy to get off the ground, but it almost seems like, Hey, if you're the first one to open a microbrewery in town, it almost doesn't even matter how good your beer is because it's different than Budweiser. So it's going to do okay. Today, the competition is, is pretty, um, you know, it's, it's heating up. So you can be the third microbrewery in town. And if nobody likes your beer, you know, who knows? So that's kind of my gut. That's kind of my gut take on it. I still think there's plenty of room to, to go. Um, okay. Another one, this person, uh, did, fill out the name form with the word anonymous. So uh, the rest of them from here on out, nobody put in their name. How do you manage having so many children and running a business, writing, speaking, etc.? cetera? Uh, I, I find the question kind of funny, first of all, because so many children, I never think of myself as having so many children. Um, at least not that I know of, right? Eh? Maybe that one wasn't funny for anybody. Um, I have three kids and... It feels chaotic and hectic for sure often, but I don't think of that as a lot, maybe because my brother has five kids and my sister has 11 children. Yes, I know. Um, so, but anyway, the question, how do you manage having children, running a business, writing, speaking, etc.? cetera? Um, actually, I wrote an article uh, called how I managed to get a lot done or how I learned to get a lot done without being busy. If you just Google that, how I learned to get a lot done without being busy. Um, it's on medium. It's also on my blog, isaacmorehouse.com. And I kind of talk about it in a little bit more detail, but bottom line for me, the most important thing of all is minimalism. My motto is delete, shred, destroy. I mean, my inbox is always at zero or near zero. Uh, when I get stuff in the mail, whether it's bills or whatever, anything that matters, I open it up, I immediately throw away everything that doesn't matter. If it's something that does matter, I act on it right away or I take a picture of it. When I, I mean, when I'm on business trips and I buy a burrito and I'm in line, I take a picture of my receipt, email it to myself, store it in my receipts folder, and then immediately throw the receipt away because I don't want to be carrying stuff around. I want to get home from a trip and be like, oh, I have a pile of receipts. Now I have to sort these for expense reports. But just all those little things I'm just constantly trying to do and get out of the way because for me, it's not even the physical space or the time, it's the mental space. I have a very small brain that can only contain so many thoughts and if I know I have undone things or things that are waiting to be done or things that are accumulating in any way, even small things, it will drive me nuts. I mean, my desk has zero items on it except for my laptop. Uh, and then maybe like, you know, a cup of coffee or something. Just just because if I see stuff around me, it's like my brain gets cluttered. And you add that to kids who, who have stuff everywhere. I always want to just throw away every toy that we have in this house because I'm convinced the kids don't care about them anyway. And they would just play with dirt and sticks. My wife and I disagree about this. But I'm always trying to purge things. Just constantly trying to minimize everything. Physical things, etc. I say no to as many things as I can that really are not valuable to me. Um, I really just try to keep things minimal. That's the only way that I can, that I can stay, uh, sane. Uh, the next question, where do you see yourself in five years? 
Is it valuable to think in those terms? You know, that's interesting because that's a question I like. I ask a lot of young people some variation of that question, um, which is probably sort of hypocritical because I actually don't think it's that valuable of a question. I I think at some point, here's what I guess I mean. I think it's interesting and valuable for me. Let's say someone's applying to Praxis to see what their answer is to that, what they think, because everyone thinks they need to have an answer to that. And I'm curious what they're telling themselves about that. Um, And deep down, I kind of feel like the secret is it really doesn't matter, right? Unless you're one of those people that has a very clear calling you're passionate about, you know, you want to be a surgeon for sure. Then that can be useful and that can be, that can be fine. But for most of us, five years is like an eternity. Who knows what's going to change in technology in our own lives, et cetera. Um, now I do like to, to sort of speculate and play around and imagine different things, but I don't, I don't do it as like a goal setting practice. Like, okay, in five years, I want to have X amount of money and be doing X, Y, and Z. Um, I find that boring because if I don't achieve it, then I feel like a failure, which like maybe for no reason, cause maybe I achieve something better. And if I do achieve it, that's just kind of boring. I don't want to know what five years from now is going to be like. I want it to all be a mystery that unfolds as I go, as I seize every opportunity. So instead, what I use in terms of future orientation is what stuff that I'm doing now do I enjoy the least? And how can I minimize it every single day? And in five years, I want to be in a point where I'm not doing any of the stuff that I don't enjoy. And I'm doing a whole bunch of new stuff that I can't even imagine yet. I can't wait to see what it is. You know, what will that be like? What will it look like? So I try to think in terms of negatives, just constantly thinking of things I want to remove from my life and how can I work towards minimizing those um, and getting there. And I don't really, I don't really, um, you know, I don't really enjoy sort of setting a goal out there for five years in the future. Okay, two more questions left. Next question, challenges as an unschooling father. I addressed this a little bit in the last um, Asked Isaac I mean, there's so many, and I think just as, uh, yeah, I will keep it specific as an unschooling father. Um, Honestly, right now, the biggest challenge for me is uh, my son, who's 10, huge, huge into gaming and, you know, Minecraft and, uh, you know, watching YouTube videos of people, um, you know, explaining different video games, etc. And the challenge is not worrying too much about like what will he become you know I try to combat combat that mindset of like well he needs to be x y or z to be successful and to be happy and just like with myself the five-year question like I don't know in 10 years in 20 years what's going to even exist what opportunities and what's going to make my son happy so why am I stressing about activities he's doing now because I'm worried that they're not going to help him become what? I mean, I don't even have something specific in mind, but so I guess it's trying to sort of let go in a way, but even more than that. So again, it's not so much about future orientation about, oh my gosh, I have to make sure my son turns out X, Y, and Z in the future. I've really done a better job in the last few years. Uh, Brian Kaplan's book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids actually is, is useful in this regard. In in focusing more on, less on what my kids will turn out like, because I actually don't think I have all that much control over that, but more on in the here and now, <laughs> moron, that was funny. I didn't mean to say moron, um, but focusing more on uh, in the here and now, um, how can we just enjoy our time with our kids? How can we enjoy our day-to-day life and minimize unhappy spots and maximize happiness for us and for them? And that's a real challenge. That's a real challenge with with my son in particular. He's just a very sort of fiery, stormy, imaginative 
uh, combative type of personality and figuring out how to enjoy the moment, but how to do it on his terms, not only on my terms. So what would I enjoy? Well, at least I imagine I would enjoy if he would be like, yeah, I'll come out and shoot hoops with you or yeah, let's go do X, Y, and Z. Um, but he doesn't enjoy those things that much. He'd rather be on his computer or telling me in great, great detail about the history of, you know, the Mario universe and video games uh, for like, I mean, he would probably go for hours on end and that gets exhausting and, and not fun to me. And I don't want to lie to him and be like, oh, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Keep going, buddy. Um, but I also want to find ways that we can connect and like enjoy each other's presence in the here and now. And that's a real challenge. There are some things that we found where we really do connect like that. Certain movies or shows or like when he's come on business trips with me, but in the day to day, our day-to-day experiences and personalities are so different and the things we enjoy are so different that it's hard to find a way to enjoy each other right now. I'm, if I zoom out, I'm not worried about him in the long term. Um, but I do struggle with our relationship in the short term, you know, how to find those connection points. That's probably the hardest thing. With, with my daughters who are younger, honestly, just, just compared to my son, they just don't seem that challenging to me. They're not that hard. Um, my son has been a, a, just a difficult, a difficult child for me to know how to be a, a dad to from day one. Okay. Final question. To what extent is general ed valuable? Is any common educational structure at the early ages a good thing? And if it is, what does that look like? Okay. If by general ed, it's meant just sort of a broad liberal education, the, the uh, familiarity with a broad range of topics and ideas and just sort of critical thinking, uh, in general, philosophical thinking, I think it's hugely valuable. Um, but how to bring that about? Is there any common educational structure at the early ages? Uh, that's a good thing. And what would that look like? I actually don't think so. I actually think creating a common structure for general ed or liberal arts is the antithesis of what general ed or liberal arts is all about. It's saying, because the minute you make something common, you create a uniform standard for general ed, you've, you've done a tremendous, massive narrowing job. You've whittled down to a tiny fraction of all the information and knowledge and subjects and, and fascinating things out there into a tiny little sliver and said, this is general knowledge. Well, who the heck gets to pick? Like, why is facts about World War I considered a standard part of the general knowledge repertoire in, you know, K through 12 schools? And like, you know, facts about, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something. Facts about baseball aren't, or whatever you might, I mean, facts about pottery or something. Like, there's nothing inherently superior about history, geography, math, you know, chemistry, biology, whatever subjects are chosen, those are tiny slivers of the field of human knowledge. And to say, you know, general education is important, therefore we'll make it specific education. It's just sort of weird to me. So to me, it's more about an environment where there's resources, openness, flexibility, ideas, opportunities for kids to just explore whatever the heck they want to. Kids are naturally general ed (laughs) consumer. They just follow whatever's interesting and curious to them as far as they want to follow it. And if they're like pigeonholed in one thing for a while, that doesn't mean they're not getting a well-rounded liberal education. That means the way they're learning to be a good thinker is through a specific lens or paradigm. And if you try to say, no, 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 don't dive deep into that thing that really interests you. Instead, consume 10 things that you're not at all interested in. I don't think that works that way. I think that's really low quality, right? It's like, instead of 
you know, you want to get into shape and you love running instead of running three miles every day and training for a marathon. No, that's terrible. Instead, do one push up, one jumping jack, uh, you know, one crunch, uh, you know, run 10 feet because then you'll be well-rounded. No, you won't. You won't learn discipline. You won't learn to push through and get hard work to get the answers you want to, to get to the end goal you want. You won't get in very good shape. And if you run all the time, you'll be in really good shape. And that actually is transferable to soccer and to other specialties in the physical you know, world. So it's the same with knowledge. My good friend TK Coleman, many, many years ago, 15 years ago, probably when I first met him, I mean, he's one of the smartest guys I know, and he was diving into really deep questions in, in cosmology and epistemology and, and way beyond my uh, abilities at all and, and level of reading in um, philosophy and almost every area of philosophy and in physics. And, and he was very a, a big study of theater and the arts. And then one day he was like, so tell me about history. I'm like, well, what do you want to know? He's like, everything. I don't know anything. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know anything? He's like, no, I literally don't know anything. Like if you told me a major war, I wouldn't know when it happened. Like, I don't know where countries are located. I just don't know anything. I've never looked into it. It's just never been a passion of mine. I've always been too busy looking into philosophy or whatever. Totally in- ignorant in a way with no shame. He just had never looked into it. And, and same with economics. And when I started telling him what little I knew, he dove in. He went to town over a period of like three, four months with economics, especially, and he mastered the basics. I mean, he knows more economics than, you know, 90% of the population, at least probably 95% of the population. And he can hang with professional economists and have conversations. And he learned it in only a few months because he knew how to learn because he, he hadn't, he hadn't artificially tried to force himself to have this really broad array of, of areas of interest and knowledge. He just dove into things that mattered to him and would be up till four in the morning, you know, fighting sleep because he wanted to push through and get that knowledge, that nugget that he wanted at the end because he was interested in it. And once he became interested in economics, he could learn it in a heartbeat because he knew how to learn. And I think that is really key, really important. You know, John Holt has, has some research on how many hours of focused learning it takes for kids to learn to, to read and write and whatever and do basic math. And in almost every case, it's like 20, 30 hours of focused learning, which is nothing, right? It's, it's hardly anything. Once they're focused and interested, they can learn it in almost no time. But what do they get in a typical curriculum structure? They get 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour every single day for years of their lives with unfocused learning. It's like, okay, whether you're interested or not, whether you're totally focused on something else, doesn't matter. Now we're learning history for 30 minutes, whether you absorb it or not. I don't think that makes you well-rounded. I think that makes you believe that all subjects are boring because they're forced upon you at a time that's not a good time. Um, I think it makes you, you know, I mean, imagine, imagine if you're like super into a book and you're loving it. And then someone's like, hey, I want you to watch this new TV show. And they keep turning it on while you're trying to read this book. No matter how good that show is, if they catch you at a bad time, you're not going to think it's interesting. And you're probably going to be less likely to ever go back and try to watch that show another time because you had a bad first experience. And I think trying to force a broad set of topics on kids instead of just letting them dive down however deep the rabbit hole goes into whatever they're interested in does the same thing. All right. Thank you so much for the questions. Oh, uh, I have to give a shout out to the production intern on the podcast, Lav. And Lav is awesome. He's in Serbia and he's been doing editing work and show notes and a lot of things for the podcast. So thank you so much, Lav. I can't even, I can't even pronounce Lav's last name. It's, it's like, hold on, let me try. Let me try. It's terrible. I've, I've tried several times and every time I get it wrong. Um, but Lav, uh, I, I put out a, um, 
feeler on Facebook if anybody was interested in helping me out. And he came to me and he's been he's been absolutely awesome. Love Kosakijevich. I probably butchered that, but thank you so much. And submit any more questions you have. Uh, IsaacMorehouse.com. You can find the Ask Isaac form there and uh, keep them coming. 